Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here, very happy to be joined by Dr. Terry Givens. Terry has written a book called Radical Empathy. The dimension that we're going to focus on today is the, the educational implications, and there's big trends around diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings. You wear many hats, Terry, but one of the hats yes. that you wear is helping deliver these types of trainings. You've also been on the leadership side of higher education, and you started uh, Brighter Higher Ed. I'll let you talk about all that, Terry. Welcome <laughs> to Trending in Education. The, the interesting thing to me, Mike, I've been thinking a lot about why I left higher ed, because basically uh, two and a half years ago, I stepped away from uh, my position as provost at Menlo College, and a lot of it had to do with structural racism that women in higher ed face. And at that point in time, I decided at some point I was going to leave higher ed way back in 2010. And so for those who don't know the book, it's really, it's part memoir, part data and, and research on kind of what are the facts around structural racism and why we are having such a hard time getting past it and the impact on me personally and on my family, but also on our broader society. And, and so one of the aha moments for me was really understanding that structural racism impacts every single aspect of our lives. I, I always talk about this one key moment. I remember I was driving around Berkeley and, and listening to NPR, and they had a story about how Black women are much more likely, regardless of class, you know, you, and education are much more likely to die in mm -hmm. childbirth and also fetal mortality is really high. And yeah. so I was just like, wow, I had already had my two boys, but just the fact that I have brown skin means that I am more likely to have a poor out health outcomes. Yeah. And that really goes back to 2001 when my dad died from a heart attack. And I learned that basically being a black male means that you're at high risk for heart disease. And it was this collision of all these things. And then the experiences I had in higher ed and just how difficult it is to be a woman, a black woman leader in mm -hmm. education mm -hmm. in general, not just higher ed. And I really want this book to, to help all of us use empathy. And the radical component of it is to you know, really take action and create change. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, so it's part memoir, it's part uh, research, and then it's also part how to uh, a bit. That's the part <laughs> I wanted to dig into a little bit more is how much of this can be taught and how do you figure out who is ready to receive this message? Because there is some waste in DEI training at times when mm -hmm. people aren't ready to hear it and they're not ready to actually change how they behave. We even did a podcast a while back, does implicit bias training even work? Because there are questions mm -hmm. about how far you take the DEI and if it's raising awareness without any change in behavior, what's the actual return on that? And, and my take from your book and from my experiences with you is that you're much more on the follow through side of this, mm -hmm. how do people actually change how they behave? Can you talk about that, how this is a how to book and how this can help people understand better how to either run a DEI program or think about bias in their organization and think about how they can be a better leader or contributor? 
Yeah. And that's a big part of why I wrote the book too, is I, especially seeing how racism and sexism were impacting myself. (laughs) I I really wanted to see change and not just the superficial, somebody comes in, does a unconscious bias workshop for half a day, leaves, and then the same patterns come back. And that was another place where I did research. I looked at the data, the percentage of black faculty is not increasing. We still have a dearth of black educators in K through 12. There's all these factors that are playing into it. And so I was like, well, we've been doing these trainings for years and years, and we're not seeing change. Why is that? Yeah. So I realized I had to start with myself. And so a big part of this book is a deep dive into my own biases. Step one is willingness to be vulnerable. And I am vulnerable all the way through this book because I really think it's critical for every single one of us to understand how we are all swimming in the sea of white supremacy. We all are impacted by the fact that the structures, everything I already mentioned that from birth, you're disadvantaged. Doctors believe things like black people have thicker skin and don't feel pain. So anyway, it really starts with understanding how we are all part of this. And and I talk a lot about internalized oppression because I realized that I had internalized a lot of the negative stereotypes and not only for other black people, but for myself. And I I had to understand for myself that, no, you know, there's things our parents tell us, you have to be twice as good to get half the credit and all Mm -hmm. that. And it's true, unfortunately, we have to understand that and and try to change it. And that's my goal is to really try to change things. So the first step is willingness to be vulnerable. The second step is really getting comfortable with who you are, being open to having empathy for yourself and really being willing to understand that it's not that you are particularly a bad person. It's partly that we have been living with these structures and these norms uh, for hundreds of years and that we have to break down structural racism. And just to pause on the second step, in addition to compassion, self-forgiveness is is part of it, I think, Mm -hmm. as well, where not Mm -hmm. just empathizing with yourself and there's interesting research, like like how VR, if you see yourself in the third person, you tend to be more Mm -hmm. forgiving than when you're living in the first person. But I do think there is an element of to get comfortable in your own skin, you have to understand that none of us are perfect. None of us have seen all of the invisible elements of racism. That's the other thing I wanted to get a little bit more of your perspective on as we talk too, is like, it does seem like there's two components to racism. There's overt explicit racism and what you're doing about that. And then there's more the structural, implicit, Mm -hmm. invisible components. And what seems to have happened, at least uh, in light of the pandemic, which is the other thing I wanted to weave into the conversation, is the the structural racism that manifests itself through healthcare is very much front and center in your book. And that was written in advance of COVID. That was one of the, the ones that it almost feels like the sea level has gone down and we're starting to see things, all of us, which is where I think forgiving yourself for not seeing something sooner. That's something for me, I still regret that I was as blind to my own racism for as long as I was, but I've since got over it. There's a point where you kind of have to move on. Exactly. Yeah. You have to move forward. Part of it is practicing empathy. So that's like step three and taking action. And that's where, yes, forgive yourself, but don't just sit back and and do nothing. We all have to take action to to dismantle structural racism. And that's really what's critical. And our our education system is just a wash in so much of this. Is it a whitewash? 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> Good one. It's really about norms, you know, the way we educate our people. People grow up in this country not understanding their history because everybody was saying how Black History Month, every month is Black History Month. Every day is Black History Day. What I'm trying to correct, even in my own field of political science, it's the history even of how the field developed. Race was a huge component of that and racism. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. can't we just get past racism? No, because it's baked into everything. There's a whole area we could get into just around African-American studies, Black studies versus Mm -hmm. political science or history, where the fact that there is a separate discipline and that there's some advantages and disadvantages Mm -hmm. to this, but it is an interesting place to think about the implications for higher education, which I know Mm -hmm. you have the deepest expertise. How does the structural racism manifest in higher ed, I guess, is what I think. (laughs) How much time do we have? Every every aspect. um, It's it's so funny because I work a lot on helping institutions recruit Black faculty in particular, but faculty, women and faculty of color more generally. Mm -hmm. These old white guys will sit up there and say, there's a pipeline issue. Okay. When I was in grad school at UCLA in the late 90s, even then over half of the grad students in my political science program were women. And yet when I got to my first job, the you know, women were just not even close to being half. And, and that's still a problem, right? Right, um, right. We don't do well with recruiting women. We're doing better, but not really well. And then on, on top of that, I, I, I'm going to call out my old institution, UT Austin, in the government department, most of the women who got to full professor ended up leaving, yeah. myself included, uh, and because there wasn't support for us. So part of it is there's this unwritten curriculum, we call it. And so there's all these ways that men and particularly white men are, are advantaged in the higher ed system. So they tend to cite each other more. One of the things we talk about is decolonizing the the curriculum, but it's more than just focusing on race. It also has to focus on gender and making sure that there's you know, women and minorities are cited equally, are included in syllabi, all of those things, because that, that matters. We mm-hmm. need people to read our work. And then on top of that, there's a whole issue of resources. At these big Research One institutions, if you look at who has the endowed chairs, it's all you know, white males mm-hmm. and they've been around longer. So yeah. Who's doing the real work? I can tell you in the departments I've been in, it's the women in minorities who are doing most of the work. And I can use minorities in this context because we are in the minority <laughs> and demographic shifts are not being reflected in higher ed and particularly in the high-end institutions, whether they're the big publics or the IVs or the IV plus. And then once we're in, we're not being retained. We aren't getting the resources we need. And one of the reasons I decided in 2010 that I was going to end up leaving academia is I wasn't getting the same. Here, I'm a Europeanist. I'm one of the top researchers in my field of immigration politics and anti-discrimination policy and race in Europe. And I, I wasn't getting the resources I needed to do my research. And these guys who take on very few graduate students and, and, you know, get these endowed chairs. So they only have to teach one class a semester. This happens, people, those who don't know, typically teach two in a research institution. And in some institutions, it's three or four classes a semester. But yeah, it's just that the distribution of the, the goodies is very unfair. Yeah. And then how quickly it can change in higher ed is the other question. And I'm going deeper a little bit on higher ed because Terry and I co-host a regular live cast series called This Week in Higher Ed. So look Mm -hmm. for us on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 Pacific. But the other thing that I've noticed looking at higher ed a little bit more in part uh, through our conversations is that there's a long history of 
higher ed and particularly in the US being slow to change. And then in light of the pandemic, it was forced to change. And now we're trying to understand what's the other side gonna look like. And mm -hmm. when you have this disruption to the status quo, that is an opportunity to start to affect some change. How do you feel about where the opportunities are? You mentioned healthcare. We, you know, we talked about education. Uh, we've seen a lot of movement on the, the political front. Where do you see stuff maybe reverting back to the old status quo the most? And where do you see stuff really, maybe there's an opportunity to change around social justice and, and issues of anti-racism. I'm hoping to, to be at the forefront of that. <laughs> <laughs> but no, seriously, I, I've been really trying to get out there and talk about these issues more and just the broader dynamics of how higher ed works, because part of the problem is we have ridiculously low graduation rates more broadly. Between 50 and 60% of students graduate from mm -hmm. a four-year institution, and then only 30% of the population is getting a degree. And those numbers are ridiculous in this era. And what drives me crazy is that all these institutions are, are bemoaning the fact that the population is declining and we can't attract, we aren't getting as many students, and so we have to raise tuition, blah, blah. No, there's millions and millions of people out there who need a college education. What we have to do, and actually, if you're if you follow me on LinkedIn, you'll know I, I talk about these issues a lot. With and there's a bunch of us, so there's a bunch of ed talks out there on Clubhouse and in general. If you want to join in the discussion, but we're really looking at the fact that a lot of the inequities in higher ed could be, you know, at least we could start chipping away at them if we did more to really focus on students and student success. Mm -hmm. For one thing, we know that faculty, for the most part, aren't trained to teach in higher ed. Yeah. And so uh, there's a lot of people who are trying to focus on that aspect of it. With brighter higher ed, I'm trying to focus on the aspect that people like me who show some leadership skills are pulled into these jobs as I was became a center director and then a vice provost without any understanding really of things like accreditation, how to manage mm -hmm. people. And I learned on the job yeah. and I had some amazing mentors, but right. in general, we just say, oh, you've been in this department this long, you can be department chair. Oh, yeah. you've been department chair for years. So why don't you become dean? And it's ironic because this is in a, an educational establishment. So you would think training and teaching and developing people would be built into the structure of higher ed, but it's really not. No, it's not. <laughs> and like I said, not even teaching. The expectation is you'll take the syllabus from your advisor, copy it, and then that yeah. just jump into the classroom and you can obviously you're intelligent you got a phd so you can teach and the word pedagogy instructional design i've really mm -hmm. dived into these topics in the last few years but actually when i on my first teaching job at university of washington the first thing i did was i went to the teaching and learning center and got yeah. all the books i could get on active learning and all these things mm -hmm. but why didn't i learn that in graduate school graduate school even for me when i was training my grad students i did because i was at university of texas at austin and my students were doing a lot of the work in the classroom because i had these huge classes, I did, you know, try to help train them on how to be uh, good teachers, but I didn't get that uh, kind of support when yeah. I was a graduate student. And so I, I really took advantage of our teaching and learning center and did everything I could to, to learn how to be a better teacher. But I just remember my first day in the classroom, it was a disaster. But Luckily, these, I recovered. Yeah, these teaching and learning centers, like they're traditionally under resourced, even pre pandemic. And now suddenly, Everybody had to, mm -hmm. whether they knew how to teach in a classroom or not, now suddenly they had to teach online. And at the same time, they're concerned about their own health and safety. Is it safe to get back if I am teaching in a classroom? How do we think about all that? And then 
At the same time, there's this awakening around social justice from last summer and Black Lives Matter is in a completely different place. I think collectively our understanding of a lot of this stuff. And then on top of that, January 6th happens. And, uh, and now we're in this new administration. Looks like the vaccines are getting out. Where do you see some of this stuff heading? If you're talking about getting this book out there, the title of this session is Practicing. You're talking about practice. How do you practice empathy? Like, how do you get better at it? How do you, yeah. are, is, are there techniques? Are there suggestions yes. you have for well, people? Yeah. And one thing I'll mention at the end of every chapter of the book, there's steps you can take. So it's, this really is designed to be a guide. And then we've also created a reading guide. If you go to either my website, Terry Givens slash Radical Empathy, or to my publisher's website, Bristol University, and just search on Terry Givens, you can download some free materials, including the, the reading guide. Yeah. T-E-R-R-I-G-I-V-E-N-S. Yes. Yeah. Dot com. Yeah. com. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that's the first thing everybody asks me is how do we do this? Mm. And I, I always believe the first step is starting with yourself because every time I go into a, a workshop or a training, people just tell us what to do. And it's no, you have to change first. And the reason my approach is different is because it's, it's not specific to whether you're a black person or a woman mm-hmm. or, or you know, everybody can do this. And we all have to figure out how we get our own understanding out of it. Because of course I know racism exists. I didn't really think about how the way I was raised in a small town in you know, Eastern Washington, or not small town, small city, growing up in a way that assimilation, I didn't think about it. We just assimilation was it. And when I got into my 20s, I really felt weird about the fact that I grew up in such a a white city and and so on. And and how do I get around that idea? But I did a a very deep dive, not only into my own personal experience of trying to understand my parents and the choices they made. Mm -hmm. And so you can start practicing empathy, obviously, with yourself. But I always tell people, start with your family, start with your neighborhood and where you live. And think about the experience that people who live in your neighborhood, if you're a white person, and if you live in a predominantly white neighborhood, think about what it must be like to be a black person who's the only black person in your neighborhood. Everybody's got their Black Lives Matter signs out there. You walk around our neighborhood, you see all these Black Lives Matter signs and, and, and okay, why aren't there any more black people living here if you think Black Lives Matter? And really, I wrote the book in this way so that you could, first of all, uh, uh, understand my own journey, but I'm trying to model the behavior. Yes. Right? The behavior has to change. We have to understand ourselves and then understand what it's like for other people, but then not just understand what it's like for other people, we have to take that next step and say, what can I do to change things? And obviously that's going to be very different for for different people. I'm out there working in the community, writing books, Mm -hmm. doing all this stuff. I'm very high energy. I I do a lot and it just continues to grow and grow. But it's, it's really important to understand that we all have agency here. We don't have to live with structural racism if we're willing to take that step and move in. And just real quick, the, the, the thought that came to mind for me too is the idea of psychological safety, which is another mm-hmm. big trend that you're seeing more about where like for a culture to change, people need to feel it's not just okay, but it's encouraged to be vulnerable. And that's the only yes. way they're going to do their best work. And the flip side of that is a toxic culture where the people yeah. who are in control are not comfortable being vulnerable and they lead more through fear and assertion of, of power and hierarchy. And that's a really interesting trend that I think is right in line with what you talk about. And lots of times the leader's role in many ways is to be vulnerable first to signal that that's right. it's okay. Yeah, exactly. That's why whenever I do a a workshop with an organization, I start with the leadership. 
because they don't only have to model being vulnerable, they have to, to let pe their people in their organization know that it's okay, that they aren't gonna yeah. get penalized for being vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And it, we have to allow people to make mistakes and, and obviously be open to being corrected when they make mistakes. And it's all very, I'm not saying any of this is easy. It was all very mm -hmm. difficult. I could tell you that it took me a couple of years to write this book and, and it was all very difficult to dive in and do this internal work as well as the, the yeah. feeling empathy. But if we can get people to do this, that I think the, the benefits are huge. Yeah, so. this will count as your third appearance, Terry. So you will qualify for a refrigerator magnet. So congratulations. I, I, and I really appreciate that. Yeah. yeah so just yeah. to tie things up for the, the training and education crowd, I, I would just say, check out the book, check out the resources and radical empathy is for everybody. Although there are going to people who you know aren't ready for it. You talked at the top of the hour, Mike, about the fact that not everybody's ready for this. And yes. what we need is allies. We need everybody who is willing to jump in and start modeling this behavior. Mm -hmm. We saw in this last election that change can happen. I'm so excited that the, the COVID relief bill passed. Yeah. And we can see that this is the result of all that hard work. I, I have so many neighbors who are out there sending postcards to Georgia and Texas and all these different places. And that work made a difference. Indeed, it did make a difference. Terry Givens was our guest. The book is called Radical Empathy. Check Terry Givens' stuff out at terrygivens.com. If you like what you're hearing today, this is Trending in Education. We'll be back again soon. Thank you for listening. Okay.